Welcome back to the Pursuit of Truth podcast. I'm Regan, and I'm not joined by Riley again because I know he doesn't want to talk about today's topic, epistemology. But before I get to that, some podcast maintenance. The podcast has been going on for over a year now, and we've gotten a ton of feedback from all of you listening. Roughly zero. Uh, we must be 100% right about everything we've done. Uh, I'm, I'm kidding about that. Our podcast isn't very good good i mean that's just probably the truth of the matter which does leave us at this point of what now uh we could go research our topics more in depth but what i find especially now is that people don't really value research which is something i've already said in a podcast Uh, what i find is that it just leads to distractions Um, people tend to just argue that research and data points you use just isn't researchy enough uh, for instance, and this is just an example, don't cling to it. Let's just say I have some survey that says climate change is real and the planet is warming. Some of you might say that's not true, that the research is wrong, and that I need to do more research. How confident are you in your ability to say a report and statistical analysis about the climate of the planet is wrong? And let me give you my confidence level on this. None. I'm going with what experts conclude because I know I don't know squat about the climate and I have no way of concluding one way or otherwise, let alone refute well that that point is invalid or valid. I would have to be a climate researcher in order to have a prayer of even doing that remotely well. So unless that is your profession or at least you have some reason such as the statistical analysis is invalid, the evaluated the data via this methodology instead of this methodology, you know, something substantial that you can explain in detail, in which case you should probably have a conversation with that reacher. can't invalidate research just on your gut. You can be skeptical of it, that's for sure, but saying it's wrong because you don't like it isn't good enough. There has to be some evidence there to disprove it, some good reasons. Feed me reasons and it will change my mind. What I find with your research isn't researchy enough remark is that it is just a distraction. It's an attempt to dismiss research with absolutely no reason to do so because you don't like the data. This isn't a good reason to do that ever. It also puts an unrealistic expectation on me to know quantum mechanics, clinical psychology, biology, computer science, economics, mathematics, statistics, chemistry, climatology, so on and so forth. Is that a reasonable expectation of any human being on this earth to be a master of all fields? No. This is why we have specialists. We have to trust their findings because no one human being can do it all. That leads me though to do address your gut, which has been the whole point of this podcast. Your gut doesn't like this, huh? Then why? What are your first principles? What should be your first principles? Let's start here and address these before doing research since this will just overwrite any research we do anyway. And so, Riley and I have tried to do this throughout all our episodes. Research is important, especially if you want to have the most correct conclusion that you possibly can. However, if you, if people don't agree with your first principles, whatever research you put on top of that isn't going to change their mind, or at least that's what I've experienced. Research is also a lot of work, and I don't think it's worthwhile at this point to start researching when, well, it seems no one really cares what we have to say, which is fine. On that point, I have looked back on our previous podcasts, and I've listened to them, and while I think 
there are really good points made in them. It takes Ryan and I quite a bit of time to get to that. I've always had and hopefully will continue to have interesting conversations with Riley, and I thought other people might like listening in. But we do take a ton of time to communicate a point which might not be the best listening experience. And maybe now that we have had these conversations, maybe we can make a more concise conversation. We've talked about revisiting the topics in our podcast to address the feedback to them, but since we have none, instead maybe we could summarize them better and more quickly, build on top of that from there. But there still are still other topics that we might want to discuss as well. I'm considering coming back to addressing illegal immigration, despite how catastrophic a failure that that podcast was. We didn't even release it. I have more thoughts on it now than I did at the time, so maybe we could make something out of it. But, alright, podcast maintenance over. On to the topic of epistemology. So, epistemology, simple definition, is the answer to what is truth. That's the fundamental question it is trying to address. This question actually has to be addressed before you answer any other question. If you ask, what is the meaning of life, and I say X, you can immediately follow that with, well, how do you know that's true? If I say why is the best economic system, you can immediately follow that up with, well, how do you know that's true? Really, any answer to any question I put forth can be followed up with, how do you know that's true? That my answer is actually an answer to the question. Um, Because of this, to answer any questions or make any conclusions, the first step has to be to answer this question, what is truth? Uh, One basic sense of truth within us that makes something true is that it is absolute. Uh, For instance, 2 plus 2 equals 4, because every time I add 2 and 2 together, I get 4, no matter what. Um, However, there's this human component on top of the truth component that we must take into consideration as well. Humans are valuable, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, We make mistakes, we miss data, we use heuristics and snap judgments to fill in gaps. Uh, Riley in particular doesn't like absolution, as he's stated, because he fears closed-mindedness and confirmation bias, which is a very real problem in human psychology. Uh, This is a constraint on our ability, but it doesn't mean it can't be overcome. I still can conclude accurately that 2 plus 2 equals 4, despite my human psychology, And the raw truth layer that our psychological layer sits on top of is still accessible to us. I still think we can do this. Throughout the podcast, especially podcast two, I've tried to spell out my own epistemological theory. And I've managed to rebut Riley's criticism of it. And I've received no criticism from anyone who's listened to the podcast. To get some critique, I went and joined a Facebook group on epistemology to have my ideas challenged. uh, Despite Riley's and I's rather negative outlook on social media that we've been pretty vocal about. And it's been highly informative and productive. Um, However, I've I've found no one in this group who's really able to disprove my theory or who's even concluded it themselves. I must be either the first person to think of this, so I, I wanted to take time in this podcast to lay it out in detail. But I also learned of other more common epistemological theories And I want to address them first. I kind of want to do the locking approach of here's why these are wrong and then here's the right answer. So let's start with theological epistemology, uh, which is 
in a nutshell, is what God said is the absolute truth. Um, but there's some problems with this already. God's plural clearly said some things that aren't true. And I won't go into that, because. but you can go to the last podcast you want to hear. Riley and I go over this point. And like I said, in that podcast, I generally find these discussions to be rather fruitless, of which that one fairly was. We had some more discussion afterwards that I think were a bit more fruitful. There's multiple gods with multiple belief systems, and there's definition of gods. Truth varies from religion to religion and person to person. To use this as a standard of truth when it isn't very objective or absolute doesn't seem to be a good idea when it varies so much. Also, why did gods, plural, maybe not plural, say what he said. There's really only two possibilities for this. Either it's chance and God flipped God or gods flipped a coin or God or gods had reasons for what they're doing. And as a rational being myself, I can reason as to what this is without gods or gods saying say in the matter. Uh, this is a point Riley and I really hung into on the last podcast, that God knew something that I didn't, and that mattered, and indeed it does. But it doesn't matter because God knows it and is involved. It matters because it is data or reasons as to why the conclusion is true. Riley focused quite a bit on who said what, such as his alien example, but that doesn't matter. It's what was said, the reasons that do matter and that we do have access to, and the ability to understand. So, that's theological epistemology. Uh, relativism. There is no objective to truth. That's very, very popular. People really like this one. I don't know why they like it, but they do. Uh, I believe this was made popular by the philosopher David Hume. However, it was also rebutted and disproven by the philosopher Big Daddy K, Immanuel Kant. This is a truth claim. A truth claim that there are no truth claims. This is a performative contradiction. And for those of you who studied logic, know that contradictions always evaluate to false, as in not true, as in a very bad answer to the question, what is truth? Because of this, relativism is an invalid as an epistemology to me. And whether or not you buy that, well, you probably won't, because again, that gut thing. The next one I found is reliabilism, uh, which is something we talked about in the last podcast, and I probably pronounced better. Hold something to be true so long as it is reliable. Uh, for instance, Euclidean space as a representation of physical space was very reliable for quite some time, until the orbit of Mercury needed to be predicted, and it wasn't reliable for that, at which point Euclidean space was ejected for non-Euclidean space and general relativity. This is the epistemology that Riley prescribes to and really likes, as I believe it promotes a person having an open mind as the psychological effect. Uh, my only critique is, what is the method for determining something is reliable? How reliable is your method for determining the reliability of something? If you find your method of determining the reliability of something unreliable, how is that possible? Because then you'd have to use it to... But anyways, 
as that and that sounds like infinite recursion or circular logic and secondly don't all your truths become falsehoods like you have no truths you're unable to because you have nothing that's reliable the method for of determining what is reliable itself must not be sub subject to reliabilism then but is absolute undermining the whole epistemology on a side note to this epistemological theory uh, there's these famous mathematical theorems called Gödel's incompleteness theorems and they're very mathematically complicated and I'm going to do them some injustice here and summarize them as the derivations of fundamental axioms cannot prove the, the axioms themselves to be true axioms being a statement or proposition which is regarded as like established accepted or self-evidently true it's just like it's so plain that it must be true but it doesn't really you don't really have reasons you don't really have justification as to why it's true so you don't really know why an axiom is true but you just accept it but i would also say it works in the other direction the derivations of fundamental axioms cannot disprove those axioms as well as for the disproof to be true it would require the axioms to be true for the disproof and they use them to prove the axioms to false which gets us in infinite recursion or it's more commonly known circular logic so that's just an aside on that so the next thing we get to fallibilism so like i said we're going to talk about this so fallibilism which seems to be pretty popular but it's it's rather dogmatic to me this is using human fallibility as part of life that we always make mistakes as i said earlier and because of this there's always some rational not psychological doubt in our conclusion so it's not a psychological doubt like oh i just feel doubtful but there's like a rational reason to doubt it uh as i've said already the human psychological layer on top of the truth layer is something we always need to deal with and is a problem but we're still fully capable of making true conclusions despite its efforts like two plus two equals four i don't have any doubt in that conclusion we shouldn't randomly kill people in our society is a conclusion I don't have any doubt in, and hopefully you don't either. Yes, we make mistakes all the time, and we should be very doubtful and skeptical of our conclusions, but we can get some things right without doubt. And this undermines the epistemology, in my view. Doubt as a constant factor in everything we do no matter what, it's just, it's dogmatic. It just comes from nowhere. And I don't, I need reasons as to why I must always have doubt um, in everything, regardless of the context. I just, I don't buy it. Then there's pragmatism. So pragmatism is the epistemological theory that uses human psychology as a basis of truth, which works pretty well for our species as human psychology will always apply to all humans, as I've said multiple times. It's also one of Riley's favorites, and that was the one point of contention we had in the podcast, and hopefully I can clear it up a bit now. Uh, I saw this discussion between Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson about epistemology, and this is what Jordan purported to use. I will act as if something is true if it is useful to me. The example they used was a gun. If someone hands you a gun, you should act as though it's un it is loaded and unload the gun so as to avoid an accidental discharge, which is a useful thing. Now, if you hand someone the gun, they check it and unload it, and you witness them doing this, and they hand it back to you, should you check it again and act as if the truth is the gun is still loaded, even though you 
clearly just witnessed the gun being verified and loaded? I would say yes, just to inculcate the habit of always checking the status of a gun, as knowledge gaps such as Riley never, never keeps his gun loaded. Um, oh, we use heuristics to fill in those knowledge gaps with something like that until the day he did. Um, that's just an example. I haven't actually accidentally discharged his gun. I have a, quite a few problems with this approach, though. The truth of the state of the gun after it is handed back to you is that it is unloaded. It's just that human psychology can't handle the truth well at times, but that's on human psychology, not the truth itself. And since this is based on what is useful for humans, it isn't going to work out all too well when the aliens from Quatnu 9 come and visit us. And it would have to be thrown out, right? Because it doesn't work for them. Finally, this requires that you also know what is going to be useful truth for the future and promotes intellectual laziness. So this is the point that Riley and I really butted heads on, and I didn't communicate very well. Um, but, for, for example, when Michael Faraday discovered electromagnetic induction in 1831, how useful was it to him or to anyone then? I would say not very useful at all. And if he was a pragmatist, he would probably he probably wouldn't even bother trying to figure it out, which is a point I tried to make to Riley during our initial discussion, that scientists would have to adopt a non-pragmatic epistemology in order to just discover knowledge. It can't be used by everyone, and therefore it isn't objective. And how useful is electromagnetic induction today? Immeasurably useful. The device you're listening to this requires that knowledge. Could Michael Faraday predicted at the time how useful the truth that that truth would become and what it would lead to? No. We'd have to have prophetic powers to do that. Do we know all the possible truths as so as to out filter out the non-useful ones? No. Okay. Now we get to the real shit, the epistemological theories that I think have some clout. So, Bayesian epistemology. So, this theory states that all truth claims have a probability of being true. It's named after Thomas Bayes, who's one of the top guys of statistics, along with Gauss, who preceded him. Little factoid there, this guy was a mathematical heavyweight, okay? The real deal. This is a crucial component when it comes to like quantum and determinism and probability waves, which are a very real part of our physical existence and allows for things like the transistors and whatever device you're using to listen to this to work. So that's where it gets its clout from for me. Um, quantum mechanics is real and therefore Bayesian epistemology probably has some good ground. I also like it when it comes to very complex systems, aka life, that they're that are too difficult to predict, that have too many variables to handle and account for, and you want to rely on statistical tools to try and get the best conclusion that you can. And clearly Bayesian epistemology would be very true for this. This epistemological theory allows for absolutes, for things to have a hundred percent probability or zero probability, which generally boils down to logic. Some people add in the condition and the truth must be less than 100% probability. However, this runs in the same problem that relativism did if this is added. If all truth claims have a probability of being true and this probability must be less than 100% as a truth claim itself, 
must not have a probability of 100% of being true, then it can be false. Which means that not all truth claims have a probability of less than 100% of being true. If it does have a probability of being 100% true, then it contradicts itself. And again, basing epistemology on a contradiction is a very bad idea. So, I really like this epistemological theory quite a bit. However, it's incomplete. It's missing one component that it direly needs to establish, which is, why are the methods of probability true? What is the basis for this? The second half of the missing component of Bayesian epistemology is my epistemological theory that I've that you've heard throughout the whole podcast. My epistemological epistemological theory that I called Regan is the best person ever epistemology. Okay, it's it's a bad name. I was thinking identity epistemology after the law of identity, but the marketing committee came back and said that might be confused with identity politics this day and age. So I've decided to name it definitional epistemology. What is definitional epistemology then? Again, you've heard me bring it up over and over again throughout the podcast to Riley's disapproval, but let me try to explain in detail. It starts similar to pragmatism in that it tries to ground itself to something. However, instead of something random like human psychology, we're going to ground ourselves to something not so random. Existence itself. So I'll start with my fundamental metaphysical claim, which metaphysics and philosophy can open up a can of worms and philosophical circles. The metaphysical claim, though, that will serve as this grounding point is that in order for something to exist, it must have affirmative definition. Okay, so what does that mean? Let me try to explain. If you're experiencing something, perceive something, or conceive a something, it would have definition. There's nothing in existence that doesn't have definition to it. If there were, and you were trying to communicate this to me, you'd have to describe it, giving it its definition. Now that seems linguistical, but it's not. This is not a matter of words I'm using, because if you were to experience or feel something, that would have definition to it. You, as a per- person, both physically and psychologically, have definition. A lot of people, rightly included, prescribe that I think, therefore I am, from Descartes, as the only truth there is, but the content of that statement, everything has definition to it. The I, as in you, has definition. Think has a definition. It all does. And as such, this is a prerequisite that in order to be, one must have definition first. Thus, as I've said many times on the podcast, the law of identity is absolutely true because existence requires it to be true. The affirmative portion of the metaphysical claim is there is there primarily to rule out nothingness, the void, oblivion, as existence. To the contrary, I would say to have no definition at all is to not exist. But this itself is a definition. Nothing, as I would define it, is all that which has no definition. I define this, however, in demarking non-existence by a negation of existence, not an affirmation of of anything existing. But wait, you ask. We can define things through negation all the the time, you say. For instance, in logic, 
not true is false. In psychology, hatred is not love. And yes, this seems to work because they are opposite definitions. However, if you took one of them away, does the other stop being defined and stop existing? If you take hatred away, is there no love? If you take false away, is there no truth? Now, some people would say yes, to which I say nay! This is a false dichotomy. All of these things have affirmative definitions and don't require their opposites in order to be defined and exist. There's other ways to define hatred without love. And let's apply this to you. Is there an anti-you somewhere out in the universe? If I find this anti-you and throw them into a star, do you cease to exist as well? I would say no. And to my point earlier, if you were able to reach into the nothingness and pull out something, it would have definition. You could perceive it and describe it, and really that's the moment you would care about it. And thus I would conclude there's no getting out of definition land. If you exist, you are trapped within definition. And I could drabble on about metaphysics, but let's save that for the philosophers to discuss in due time and move on with a statement that because existence requires definition, the law of identity is absolutely true, which is something that African Spur, I think, said as well. Uh, the law of identity, as I would define it, is all things must have definition, and all things must have definition so they distinguish themselves from other things. Going to dig deep into that, but note that the law of identity exists as an affirmative definition, and it adheres to itself. Next, we need two more things. Um, so let's start with the number two, or quantity, since I brought that up. Quantity must have definition in order to exist. And I just mentioned a type of quantity, the number two, so we need this definition in order to have two. What is that definition? Uh, quantity is a property that can exist as a multitude, how much, or a magnitude, how many. That's the mathematical definition I got off of Wikipedia, and beyond that I can't define it any better than that. If you want to know more on that, you're just going to have to like consult a mathematical philosopher if one such person exists. Just know that if you want multiple things, plural, multiple definitions, you're going to have to have quantity along for the ride, and indeed our existence has more than one definition in it. I don't really meet too many people who argue against this point, and I am just would say dogmatically that all mathematics is derived from quantity. The other thing we need is state. Something to define definitions that we have and that allow them to change to other definitions. And this thing would be called time. Now at Kurt, there's a war on time because something something quantum mechanics. Now I don't know what this argument is and I probably can't understand it, but quantum mechanics is true and therefore I can't dismiss this argument. I would say as a counterpoint to any quantum physicist, though, is that you need to go talk to your computer science bodies down the hall and ask them what computer algorithm has a time complexity of zero, because as far as I know, there is none. Computation requires time to be there, and thus it can't go away in computer science. This m might be more in the workings of relationship between static definition and dynamic computation, the law of non-contradiction and paradoxes, but that is a whole nother can of worms that could have a whole podcast all to its own that no one would listen to. And so I'm not going to go into it. Uh, we can imagine existence without time, though, where the state never changes and thus 
I would say time is not absolute. However, this seems to be not our existence right now as things are changing. So I'm going to say we, we have time. Pretty, pretty confident in that. At this point, we have three things. The law of identity, quantity, and time. Because of this, a whole bunch of other things come along for the ride. Uh, one of them is the aforementioned law of non-contradiction, which is defined as no logical statement can be computed to true or false at the same time. See, time is required there. And that there must be a singular state in computation, which has massive repercussions that we're not going to discuss. And the other would be the law of excluded middle, which is the logical statement or its negation must be true. Uh, this doesn't con conflict with the false dichotomy of negated definitions I mentioned earlier, and for the sake of time, for the sake of time, I'm just going to state that dogmatically. Uh, again, I'm not really going to go into these, but they come along with existence as well if time is present. And again, I can't compute without time. Um, another consequence of the law of identity is distinguishment, as I like to call it. Definitions distinguish themselves from other definitions. However, if there's only one definition, this isn't really required. If there were only one thing in the universe to talk about, never mind how multiple people exist to talk and time and quantity and all that stuff, you don't really need to say anything. Anything you, you would say would be the one thing, which would have to be the law of identity. Again, this isn't a consequence of linguistics as it is of existence and the law of identity, quantity, and time. Because of distinguishment as a consequence of multiple definitions, you can have an infinite amount of things to distinguish, but you can't have less than two things. And thus, we can be certain of at least two things beyond the law of identity, quantity, and time, and let's call them true and false, the basis for binary logic, which you will always have. If we take true or false, 0, 1, and arrange them in all their possible combinations, because we have quantity to do that with, and then say for each possible combination, if you apply an operator, it reduces two definitions of true and false to just one of those, and take all the possible combinations of that, and maybe give these combinations some names, such as, let's say, and or implication and exclusive or, you have derived your logical operators needed for binary logic, and with these, you can, again, using the methodology in a similar manner, commonly known as truth tables, you can also derive, like, modus ponens, modus tollens, etc., at this point, I hope I've proven to you that binary logic, mathematics, law of identity, quantity, and time, with some further discussion to be had on that one, are absolutely true for our existence. With maybe some exceptions to the details, no one really argues these points anyway. Well, if you're aware of them. Nobody doubts logic or mathematics as absolutely true, even if they don't know why, but now you do. So, why go through all of that, then? Well, it provides the basis that mathematics and Bayesian epistemology needed, but secondly, it has one last major consequence, and that is because of binary logic and mathematics are absolutely true for our existence, because the law of identity and quantity and time from which they are derived of are absolutely true, then when their powers combine, they form Captain Planet, or computation. Thus, computation, computer science, is absolutely true. The additional constructs needed for computation are quite simple to derive. You need memory, which is a collection as in two or more of definitions, 
which quantity and the law of identity provide, and a branching of state, which is provided by time and the law of non-contradiction. Because of computation being absolute for our existence, and being that the strict objective rules by which definitions are allowed to change, computation provides causality. Now this is a massive statement, which I will say dogmatically for now, but I will, will say that you believe if you believe in simulation theory, that our existence is simulation, then you also agree by default that that is true. The final definition we need is the law of preservation, or context preservation. This is something I came up with, and it's a rather sneaky hidden law within computation. Um, the law of preservation is that if there are parameters required by an algorithm in order to complete the algorithm, the algorithm cannot delete the definitions at any point in its computation until it is complete. For example, if I ask you to add three and four together for me, if you actually intend to do this, you cannot delete three or four from your memory until you have finished the addition of process. Otherwise, you'll never be able to do it. And because of the law of preservation, you must preserve the initial context when executing an algorithm on that context. So another example, if I ask you what future action should we perform as a society, you cannot delete the definition of society from your mind a society is required for you to answer, and as a consequence to your answer, you cannot conclude that society should delete itself, as that answer requires its presence. Okay. At this point, I'm going to stop myself. I think that's quite a bit of philosophical dribble that no one is going to understand for now. I hope I at least convinced you that mathematics, logic, and computation are not arbitrary constructs, but absolute definitions of our existence, and because of this, the truth is very much real. There's plenty more to discuss, but until then, I'll see you in the next one.